The Braving Business Podcast is brought to you by, well, me. I'm PJ Benoit and have been in the domestic and international logistics and transportation field for over three decades. Are you looking to ship literally anything, direct to consumer or business to business, small package, pallet and freight, truckload, international air and ocean, warehousing and distribution, and so much more? Let's connect. Go to shipwithpj.com to learn more. That's shipwithpj.com. And now for the show. Our guest today, Francisco J. Sanchez, has had a long and a distinguished career in the public and private sectors. Francisco served as the U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Trade until 2013, a role former President Barack Obama nominated him to in 2009. As the Undersecretary, Mr. Sanchez led the International Trade Administration in its efforts to improve global business environment and or by helping U.S. businesses compete abroad. Francisco was one of the architects of President Obama's National Export Initiative with the goal of doubling U.S. exports by the end of 2014. He directed programs and policies to promote and protect the competitiveness of American businesses. During the Clinton administration, Mr. Sanchez served in the White House as a special assistant to former President Bill Clinton and chief of staff to the Special Envoy to the Americas. He then served as assistant secretary at the U.S. Department of Transportation before returning to the private sector. Currently the co-head of the International Trade Practice at Holland and Knight, he is also an entrepreneur and an investor. He founded North Star Bank in Tampa, Florida, which was later sold to Seacoast Bank and CNS Global Consulting Group. Until recently, he was on the board of directors of Archer Daniels Midland. He is also, in full disclosure, a good friend and business partner of my co-host Tal, and is the co-founder and chairman of Tal's new startup, still in stealth mode, Breeze AI. Francisco, it is a privilege and an honor to have you on the Braving Business Podcast. Thank you, PJ. It's good to be with you. Francisco, it's great to see you, brother, and I appreciate you doing this very much. Um, Thank you. Thank uh, you, Tal. Good good to be with you, too. (laughs) Thank you. So, Francisco, obviously, uh, I I know a thing or two about you, and I can't wait for my audience to get to know you uh, because you've lived an extraordinary life. Uh, We just heard the uh, remarkable bio. Um, a lot of people, um, I, I was blushing for you, uh, but you've had a career where you've, uh, you've been in various high profile roles uh, in both the public and the private sector. And, uh, what I know about you is that you came from a family of courageous and innovative people and especially strong and ambitious women. Uh, you and I've spoken about your mom and your grandma. Uh, I'd love for you to share your background story. And if you have to cry, you will. Francisco cries. He, he cries. He's a crier. <laughs> Uh, but I'd love for your, I'd love for our listeners and viewers, uh, to hear about these women, particularly your mother and the influence she's had on you. And, uh, I'd love to hear how you drew inspiration, uh, from her journey in your own professional pursuits. Well, thank you, Tal. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I was raised, uh, in large part by strong women. Um, my, my mother, um, was, was, uh, had a very successful professional career, um, there's a there's a, a public federal program called Head Start, and uh, Head Start was funded in the '60s, um, and it's it's still around today. And it's one of the few federal programs that um, 
both Republicans and Democrats uh, continue to support. Uh, the program uh, is uh, set up to help preschoolers, so age four and five, uh, prepare them to go into school and mostly focused, actually exclusively focused on kids from underserved uh, and uh, families that don't necessarily have the means uh, to provide adequate nutrition and medical care. Um, and so my my mother wrote the first program for Head Start in the United States and then administered the local program for 20 years. Uh, and so I, I watched my mother's life of service. Honestly, that, that if I had to describe my mother, my mother had a life of service and and she was had a big impact uh, on me um, in terms of the way she she thought about her life and what she uh, how she would contribute to the world. Uh, my alarm in the mornings when I would wake up was my mom's voice not gently nudging me to wake up, but on the phone with all of her team, making sure that they all had the right assignments to pick up Johnny to go to the uh, the orthodontist or uh, Susan to go to the doctor. Uh, and that was every morning starting at about 6.30 in the morning. So that, that was that's the way that I, I grew up hearing that. Now, you asked about the women in my life, but I, I, I would be remiss to not mention my father, who ran a small family business in Spain for much of his adult life. Um, and um, I, I would have to say I got this, this interest in business from my dad and this interest in service uh, from my mother. Mm. A little bit about my background. That's amazing. I, um, first of all, kudos to your mom. Uh, kudos to, to all of our moms. I think that, uh, they must've had an incredible influence. I, I was brought up mostly by my mom. Uh, she was a single parent ever since I was seven. So had some influence from dad, but not a lot. And having that strong figure there, um, was definitely something that resonated really with me and, um, you know, just helped me, help me through life really like having that backbone there always was, uh, was such a, a joy and a privilege really. So kudos, kudos to your mom. <laughs> thank, thank you. Um, yeah, she, she had a, a tremendous impact. She was, um, she had a heart of gold, but she was tough as nails. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I, um, uh, I remember you talk about resilience and being strong. Um, like most kids, my age, not so much today I'm learning, but at my age, 14, I couldn't wait to drive a car. Yep. And uh, I I was harassing my mother to drive the car from my grandmother's house to our house, which was about a 15-minute ride. And uh, uh, she, she let me. She shouldn't have, but she let me. And we're driving down a street here in Tampa, and a guy runs a red light. And so I have to slam on the brakes to avoid an accident. The car does literally a 360-degree turn. So I ultimately end up in the same direction that I was going and the direction I need to go. But I, I was shook up. And my mother very calmly says, pull over with a, with a very strong voice. So I, I get through the intersection. I pull over. She says, are you okay? I said, yeah. She says, then keep on driving. And that was my mom. 
Um, you know, someone else would have said, get out of the car. I'm taking over here and you're never going to drive again until you get your damn license. Um, but she, she knew that I needed not to be afraid, uh, after having that, that near, uh, accident experience. Um, and so I kept on driving and, um, and that's really, uh, one of the, the lessons I took away from, uh, my mom is that life throws things at you, but you can't let it shut you down. You got to keep on driving. Absolutely. How do you think that she prepared you? And for, well, obviously she prepared you for many things in life. Um, but your career is, is remarkable, right? I mean, and first of all, thank you for your service, obviously. For, thank you. For really everyone. I mean, it, it, to, to serve, um, you guys are the, are the, like the unsung heroes of governmental service where you're, you're asked to do a task. And a lot of times it's, um, it could be uh, pretty thankless, but you're you're there to try to do what's best for the country as a whole. And you were in an industry, or I'm sorry, you're in a sector that directly involves my industry, which is in the transportation side. And I can tell you, um, we would be literally dead in the water without the work of of you and and people who preceded you and and after you. So, thank you, thank you for that as well. Um, thank you, PJ. So with your with your mom and and your career right you're you're going back and forth your your private sector your government your CEO your you know your advisor you're all over the place I know for me I've run into and I I'm sure Tal and other people have run into things um where you are feeling the sense of imposter syndrome right like literally just today <laughs> someone, someone said, oh, and you know, PJ and this other person will have a C-level conversation. I was like, what, me? <laughs> <laughs> like I, me? I, oh yeah, that's right. I guess I am. Right. So it's like, how do you, you know, did your mom prepare you for that or, or what, what do you do to get past or have, first of all, I guess, have you had imposter syndrome? And second of all, if you had, what prepared you to get over that? What's your, what's your technique of, uh, stealing yourself for that moment? Um, well, if I understand the definition of imposter syndrome, I, I, the answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I can think of at least two examples. One, I, I got admitted to Harvard uh, University uh, in a master's program in public administration. And I thought, sure, that the admissions office had made a mistake <laughs> and, and continued to believe that for the first month or two uh, that I was there. Um, I, and I think the second time that I felt that is when I got the job at the White House. Um, I had never planned to work at the White House. It never occurred to me that I would ever have that opportunity. And I remember the, for the first month, my morning would start at 745 in the Roosevelt Room, which is, which is the president's conference room. And it would be with other senior staff and the president's chief of staff. And I would walk in that room every day thinking one day somebody's going to secret service is going to come grab me and say, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. What are you here, doing you here? here. <laughs> so, you know, those are two times in my life that I do remember feeling like I don't think I belong in either of these places. Um, but I, I think you, you, what I did at the start with Harvard, I just said, well, you know, I am here. I did get accepted. And whether they made a mistake or not, I'm going to give this 110%. Um, 
and that's what I did. I just I said I, I I'm here and I'm I'm going to make I'm going to make something of this experience. Um, and and the same with the White House. Um, I you know I got I got over that feeling. It took me a little while, um, and I found mentors, uh, people that had been there and had similar experiences that hadn't expected to ever work in the White House, and 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 were kind enough to admit to me that they too felt like. When we first got here, you know, what am I doing here? Somebody made a big mistake. And those mentors were terrifically helpful. And so one of the things I've learned in life is there's there's very little that we do by ourselves. And um, people have helped me along the way. And I haven't been bashful to reach out and seek advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that helped me a lot. Um and, 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 you know, my mother kind of saying there are times when life throws you stuff and you got to just tough it out. And so when you have those insecurities, I, I, it's not quite as bad as having a almost a head on collision with somebody in a busy intersection. Um, but it can be just as debilitating. And so um, so I would attribute it to uh, the resilience I learned early on from from my mom, especially um, and from not being afraid to reach out and ask for advice and help from people that came before me um, and became good mentors. It's such a uh, fascinating topic. I think the topic of imposter syndrome or not necessarily feeling like you belong um, is something I didn't didn't get exposed to until uh, many years into my career. And I remember thinking for the longest time, I assumed that was the only person in the room that didn't feel like he belonged or that had to prove himself and to discover that this was actually generally the human condition. It almost didn't matter who you were, what position you reached, uh, how much stature you had. Uh, there is still that sense of, am I, am I in the right place? Uh, people are charging me uh, or tasking me or uh, supporting me in pursuing some sort of a goal. Am I really up for that? And you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners and viewers know exactly what we're talking about. And I think it's great for them to hear that even someone that, you know, reached the levels of accomplishment and still is reaching level of accomplishment that you have uh, experienced those. I think that's good for people to hear. I, I, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, what it was like to pursue bold initiatives within government. You were one of the main architects of President Obama's national export initiative. It was a very, very bold initiative with very high expectations. And I have to imagine that it had its fair share of challenges. I would also imagine that there were allies as well as adversaries, both within government and in the private sector. Talk to us about how you maintain resilience and focus when you're confronted by people who have opposing viewpoints and people who will have an opposing viewpoint, regardless of the merits of your argument, because it behooves their position or their point of view to oppose you, uh, regardless of whether they even think that you uh, have a point. How do you deal with that? What lessons did you learn about bringing together disparate people in a disparate coalition around a big goal? Well, I have to say, um, I, I was somewhat fortunate in my mission uh, as Undersecretary of Commerce, um, because my primary job, I had I had a lot of different responsibilities, but my main job was promoting American business abroad. And, and I had a wonderful team. Um, we had offices in 72 countries with very dedicated people that spent their time figuring out how to help uh, a small business owner export his or her goods and services 
in in some country around the world. Uh, but because the job was supporting American business and selling goods and services all over, it was a little bit like motherhood and apple pie. So I I had really bipartisan support. Uh, probably one of the few senior officials within the Obama administration that enjoyed support from both Republicans and Democrats alike. And um, and to the extent that I didn't, um, I would reach out and I would I'd talk to folks. I'd listen to their point of view. Didn't mean I agreed with them, but listening was a big part of it. And and just being willing to hear another person's point of view and hear it fully and let them know I understood before I tried to convey my point of view. Um, so, so I would say I, I was lucky in terms of the subject matter I dealt with, particularly in my last government posting. Um, but when I did confront uh, people who had a different point of view, I tried my best to let them know I really wanted to hear them. And I let them know I did hear them before I tried to persuade them of something else. I, I would say that that was a, a, a big part of my success in dealing with people who had opposing views. So the 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 message there or the lesson there is that you start by listening. If you're trying to convince, the first step in convincing or the first step in enrolling is listening, uh, because people need to feel heard and they need to feel respected and they need to feel a part. Yep, very true. Yeah, it 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 really it really does. I, there's an old uh, uh, an old adage that says uh, we have two ears and one mouth. Uh, because we should listen twice as much as we talk. And an analogy to that adage is it's really hard to learn anything when your mouth is moving. Mm -hmm. And so part of listening is trying to learn why this point of view is so important to the other side. And that helps you perhaps some, learn something new that you didn't know. It also helps you frame your point of view in a way that the other person may hear you better if you've understood how they see the world, uh, how they think about a certain issue. So I, I think listening is a, is a very important part to uh, dealing with, with folks that have opposing views. I think that's a great point. I think a lot of people these days tend to listen to respond instead of listening to learn. Right. And so to build a coalition to to employ emotional intelligence, you you have to be able to listen to learn so that you can understand your audience. Right. And just like you're saying, you don't have to agree with them. But if you're going to get them to work with you, they have to just the toss point. They have to feel heard. They have to feel seen and that their needs and, and wants and desires are taken into consideration, no matter what the the, the uh, determination is. So. Very cool. And, and that's, and that's true. I think not only in business, it's true in life. It's true oh, yeah. in, you know, intimate relationships. It's true with raising your children. Um, so I think it's a, it's a very valuable uh, perspective for all of us to reflect on and internalize. And I should say it, it's, it's easier said than done. Oh yeah. So as I, as I tell you, that's the way I did it. I didn't always do it very well <laughs> um, because you know, you'll hear somebody say something, that, that to you may be outrageous. And uh, I sometimes didn't catch myself and I'd go into advocacy mode before I really listened. Um, so it's, it's, it really takes effort to do this. It's, um, 
it's very valuable, but not always easy. That's excellent. Excellent point. So you served not only in the Obama administration, you served in the Clinton administration. Um, I'm going to assume two different atmospheres in the White House. Um, but you know, you were a special assistant to Clinton. So I, I'm assuming that meant that you worked with him quite closely, um, spent a lot of time with them. Was there anything that you experienced really in either either capacity, either White House? Um, was there anything that you experienced during those times that really kind of gave you some good tidbits about leadership or about um, or any lessons about leadership that that you can employ today? And partic- well, particularly during trying times, because the, both these administrations uh, had their their true. share of trying times. Thank you. Yeah. Um, let me start with President Clinton. Um, two, two things that that three things that really stand out. Um, one is that a job like the president of the United States, you just cannot do a good job by yourself. Just like I mentioned earlier that you you're not successful by yourself. As you progress in your career, you really have people helping you along the way. Well, that that is very true for the presidency of the United States. Mm. And you want to you want your team to feel motivated. You want your team uh, to feel like you're res- they're respected for what they're doing, what they're contributing. And when I first got to uh, the White House, and I was in my role as chief of staff to the special envoy to the Americas, which was the president's personal representative to the Western Hemisphere. Um, I was kind of learning my job. Uh, I had never worked in the White House. I'd never been a chief of staff. And and I was told, well, one of the things you have to do is every week you have to write a, a report that's no longer than a page and a half that goes to the president about what your office did that week. And I remember thinking, well, this is really a bunch of baloney. The president is too busy. He's not going to read my one page or one and a half page report. He's got 45 or so different offices that do this. And there's no way that this guy's going to read this. But I dutifully at six o'clock on a Friday evening submitted my first one and a half page report on our office's activities. And I sent it to the um, th- there was, I can't remember the proper name, but it was the, the person who collected the documents that would go to the president. I submitted it to that office again, thinking this was just, uh, uh, uh an act that really isn't going to do much, but I'm supposed to do it. So I'll do it for protocol for, for protocol. Yeah. And I'm yeah. just doing it, but what a waste of time mm-hmm. <laughs> at 8 30 AM on Monday morning. I get my report back with annotations in President Clinton's handwriting. Um, Not on every paragraph, but I'd say that first report had three or four annotations where he sometimes it was simply, this is great. Other times he asked a question and I stared at it for about five minutes. I, I can't believe he actually read my report. And and he would read the, those reports every weekend. And he would find some time during the weekend to read the reports of everybody that submitted one, which, like I say, were about 40, 40 or so offices in the White House. I, I can tell you that one that was a great motivator for me, and it also gave me respect at how hard he worked. Um, he really wanted to know what 
all his different offices um, were doing. So uh, that that was one that that really impressed me. Um, the second thing that I- I impressed me was that Bill Clinton could work and talk with just about anybody. And even during the height of his being impeached, he would meet with people from uh, elected officials from the Republican Party that were actually leading the charge to impeach him to do the people's work. And to be able to do that, to me, was extraordinary that, you know, he, he had this he had this personal thing happening here where, where the, the, there were people who were who believed he had done something wrong and needed to be held to account. And yet he, he somehow was able to compartmentalize that and work with the very same people that were standing in judgment of him because that was his job. And that was that was impressive to me. And, and I thought important for the country to, if you're going to stay in this job, even under this kind of pressure, to be able to to do that. Um, and then the third was just his sheer intelligence. I, I worked with a team to write a speech for him on Latin America. And it was kind of a, um, it was, I'm sorry, it wasn't Latin America, it was focused on Colombia. But it, it cut across seven or eight different topics on our relationship with Colombia and the and the vital interests we had and how we had to deal with it. And this team worked on this speech for the better part of three weeks. President gets it the night before his speech. And um, about 45 minutes before his speech, I and the others that had worked on it go into the Oval Office to see if he has any questions. He said, no, it's good speech. I'm, I'm good. And he joked a little bit and we got in the motorcade and went to the State Department where he was delivering the speech. And he delivered the speech flawlessly, but would go off script and talk about things that were not in the speech, but were absolutely accurate, and then come back to what we had written and did that about a half a dozen times. And um, and that same day gave two other substantive speeches on other re- on topics totally unrelated to that. So here's a guy who gave three different speeches that day on unrelated topics and delivered them flawlessly, including his own personal content content above and beyond. So th- those were the three things that I took away from him. One is just his raw intelligence. I don't mean that he was perfect because, you know, the country has come to know that, that he had his flaws. Um, but his just raw intelligence, his ability to work with people, even when there was tremendous uh, conflict and and his letting his staff know that the work that they did mattered and he was paying attention. Yeah, and every one of these lessons, I think, uh, applies whether you're obviously the president of the United States or or the president of a small business. Uh, we all have opportunities to, A, uh, show our staff that we're paying attention and we care and we appreciate. Uh, we all have opportunities occasionally to be involved in things that are bigger than ourselves. Um, and we all have, whether we call them opportunities or the reality of having to deal with people that we may not like or may not like us. And uh, you don't have the privilege of only doing business with people you like. I mean, everybody, you know, now it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, pretty common for people to say, well, I don't I do not do business with, you know, with jerks. But the reality is, you know, the world does have some of those people. And uh, you have two options. One is take your ball and go home. 
And the other is to be bigger than the situation and do what the situation requires of you in the service of bigger things. And I think, you know, that's, that's what we're hearing you say. Let, let's move to entrepreneurship. You've, uh, you know, in addition to being a very, very successful attorney, um, you've also been an entrepreneur. You founded a bank. Uh, you founded a consulting group. Uh, you're currently involved in a number of businesses, including, including my startup. Um, tell me, what is it about entrepreneurship that appeals to you? What is it about being in business and not just supporting businesses you did in government? But what is it about being in business that, that you find uh, enticing and exciting? Well, first of all, let me let me just correct something there. I I co-founded those business. I did not do them by myself. Um, North Star Bank that you referenced was co-founded by eight other people. We did it together. Um, it it took us from the first time we met for dinner and talked about it till the day we received our license, eighteen months. Um, I've never given birth, but it felt like giving birth twice um, <laughs> uh, over over an eighteen month period. Um, and um, and so I just wanted to say that. And then the the international business consulting firm I founded, I founded with a partner. Um, and and almost everything I've done in business has always been in collaboration. Um, but I, I love entrepreneurship and I love entrepreneurs. Um, I I think people I, I often give talks at, at universities. Um, to undergraduate students, and they all often ask me, what advice do you have for me? And one of the biggest things I talk about is taking calculated risks in life. If all you do is just play it safe, um, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. And I don't mean taking crazy risks, but but taking cal- sometimes crazy risks work too. I was just reading um, about one trip, the founder of Pan American Airways. And um, before anybody had ever done it, he he uh, provides a service between the United States and Asia in 1936, I believe, to fly there um, when nobody had ever done it. So sometimes even crazy risks are good. I I'd say at the minimum take some calculated risks, and and entrepreneurs do that every day, every single day. And so I'm drawn uh, to to folks that that have that mindset that are not willing to just play it 100% safe, uh, but to take some chances um, and to innovate and to be a part of something that's bringing something new to market or something that's slightly better than what's out there. It just, uh, it's a passion of mine and, uh, and, and I, I love doing it. And I've been, I've been very blessed to be uh, a part of a number of different businesses uh, some of them uh, more conventional, like a like a re- uh, regional slash local bank, uh, a business consulting firm, and others more like the one that you and I are working on now with Breeze, that that involves artificial intelligence and involves coming to the market and something that's that's quite new. Um, so I like I like both. I like the really new and innovative stuff and the 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 other services that have been around, but we think we can do them better. <laughs> that's uh, that Very is. Cool. Yeah, that's very, very cool. So, you know, having experience in both government as well as the private sector, um, obviously there's setbacks. You, you've had 18 months of labor, um, (laughs) (laughs) right. I mean, and, and I'm sure same kind of pains through every, we're going to get some hate mail over this PJ, you know that, right? No, no, it's, (laughs) Hey, (laughs) I have nothing but mad respect for women. I mean, and, and giving childbirth, we can't even, we can't yep. even fathom. Um, but 
you know, you've you've gone through you've gone through these these trials and tribulations, these setbacks. Um, I'm sure both uh, in the private sector as well as in in government. What do you when, when you're when you're challenged like that? Um, you know, how do you tailor resilience for that? Like, how do you approach approach it so that you can you can have the best resilience in order to move forward? I think the first thing you need to know is that you may have lofty goals, you may have a plan, um, and, and sometimes those goals and plans just don't work out. And you've got to be able to pick yourself up and keep going. Um, one of the one of the most uh, valuable lessons that I've ever had uh, from my career was a failure. Sure. Um, a, just a complete failure. Um, I uh, got approached by some folks that had started a, a manufacturing business in Tampa, Florida, and um, they had a they had a very interesting product that I thought was perfect for Florida and for other parts of the country. Um, but the the company was struggling. It was a startup, and it was struggling. And the first mistake I made was to take on something I didn't know enough about. Uh, big mistake on my part. Uh, and the second was not enough. I didn't do enough due diligence. Um, but I stuck in there. I struggled. I tried my best to turn this company around. And after a year and a half, I couldn't. And uh, I had to. I had to be a part of the team closing it. Um, and it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, but I, I hung in there um, because at the end of the day, all you have is your integrity and your word mm -hmm. and uh, you give it your best. And I, I, you know, to say it was painful um, when I first joined that company, I got written up on the front page of the Tampa Bay business journal. They took that a huge picture of me and they did this great story and the day we closed our doors, I was on the front page of the of the <laughs> journal again, and that that wasn't so nice to have to be on there for that second article. Um, but I, and I got to tell you, it was it was tough. I I had high blood pressure for the first time in my life, um, having to deal with that experience, and um, I lost money. I lost a, a nice chunk of money. Um, and I, you know, I, I viewed it to some degree as a, not as a, as a failure. I couldn't turn this business around uh, and we had to close the doors. But as I look at my life, it's that experience has been one that I've drawn from repeatedly in other things that I've taken on since. And I think I learned more from that than any of the successes that I had. So, you, you know, when you hear that it's okay to fail, um, let me assure you, it's better not to fail. But if you do, don't shun it. Don't try to just set it out of your mind. Try to pull the lessons that, that can come from that and apply it to the next challenge you take on. Um, because you're 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 gonna analyze, you're gonna think, what what could I have done differently? What should I have done here? What should I have not done here? And that kind of analysis doesn't blow as easily when everything seemingly worked flawlessly. Um, so I, I don't know if that answered your question, PJ, but I hope there's something useful there. Oh my gosh. There, there's, there's so many useful things really. I mean, 
I, I was I was just thinking about it while you while you're talking. I was thinking about you know what what my takeaways are going to be from this conversation and in, in as a whole. And really, I think it's it's the lesson that your mom gave you, which was, "Are you okay? Then keep going." Right? And it yeah. is if that is not the epitome of Gen X, I don't know what mm-hmm. is because it's it is so encapsulate it, it encapsulates it so where you know what take a self assessment are you doing okay are you going to live right yeah. and then rub some dirt on it and keep going right like it's i i think it's i think it's amazing and and for for people that need to find that type of self resilience sometimes it's it's good to to really be um honest with your self self assessment and say okay all right that sucked right yeah it, it totally sucked let's take a step back let's remove ourselves from that and look at it with fresh eyes and what can we learn from that and i i thank you for that yeah i, th- I think it was incredible and so useful i, I want to ask you one final question um which is about your self-talk um you know you've talked a lot and very eloquently um about incredibly important components of success and and learning how to succeed through failure um what kind of self-talk um you know we all talk to ourselves right we we have a voice in our head um and um if you read the literature we tend to be significantly harder on ourselves than um, other people are and we tend to be far kinder uh, to other people uh, than we are to ourselves very true how do you regulate that do you do you i mean as and as i and you're you're a dear friend one of my best friends you're incredibly humble every time i talk to you i feel like i'm a better person for having spent time with you how do you all right now now i'm gonna now i'm gonna cry so stop well it's true (laughs) what can i say it's true um what is it that you do because i i find you to be so incredibly gentle and so incredibly kind i want to believe that that extends inward. Are you kind to yourself? Is there a lesson about self-kindness that you think uh, resonates through to how you treat other people? Because the way you treat other people is remarkable. How kind are you to you? You know, I, I think uh, I, I think there there's great value in self-awareness and and trying to um, understand what's going on in your mind. Um, I, I try not to beat myself up, uh, too much when I screw up. Um, but I will tell you that's hard, right? Cause I, I'm, as you just rightly pointed out, I'm my, my own worst critic and, and I'm pretty hard on myself. But I, I think that what I've learned over the years is that your mind is going to talk. It's going to, there's going to be a chatter in your head and, and sometimes it's not very useful chatter. So I really have invested in ways to calm my mind and try to find more peace um, in myself. And I believe that will help carry me. And, and honestly, probably the greatest thing that I do right now is uh, is meditation. I do a breathing meditation. Um, I wish I could tell you I do it without fail seven days a week, but I don't. Um, but I try to do it pretty consistently. You're being hard and, on yourself, Francisco. It's okay yeah, if you go. do it five or six days a week. <laughs> um, but but I but but I'm doing that. I try to spend time with with friends that I care about, that nurture my soul. Um, I try to get some exercise. I try to be out in nature. I I 
I think there was a time in my life where I would put all that stuff aside, whether it was spending time with friends, meditating, uh, doing exercise, walking in nature. If I had the time, I'd fit it in. Um, and if I didn't, oh, well, I got to do my job or I've got to do what, whatever it was that I was focused on. And today I make all those things as big a priority and I find that I function better in whatever professional activities I'm doing. And so I, I would say that, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't have a silver bullet that I totally shut down the negative talk that occasionally pops into my head. Um, but I'm giving priority to things that help um, nurture an inner peace. Um, and that's making me a better professional. Our guest today was Francisco Sanchez. He is a uh, distinguished, has had a distinguished career in both the public and private sector. He still is very much in the prime of his career. Uh, he's an incredible human being. We were absolutely privileged to have you here with us today. I'm grateful for your time, grateful for your friendship, and I'm sure our audience uh, is wiser for having heard what you had to say. Agreed. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tal. Thank you, PJ. It was great to be with you guys. Uh, appreciate you inviting me. Thank you so Our much. Pleasure. And that's a wrap, folks. Thank you for being a part of the Braving Business Podcast listening audience. Be on the lookout for our weekly interviews with fascinating leaders in business and gain insight into their mindset of how they took to braving business in their own lives and careers. Check us out on YouTube, LinkedIn, and all of your favorite streaming services. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time on the Braving Business Podcast. 